Hello and welcome to Cat the Baker. I'm Chef KB. So my last episode, I was talking about New York and how I moved there and all my firsts. And it became a whole episode, which I didn't really think I'd have this much to say about New York. But then all these other things came up. I have a lot to say about New York. 9-11 happened when I was living there. I was living in Jersey City on Colgate Street with my roommate and very good friend. We're still very good friends. Usually I give random names to people, but her name is Beth. I'm thinking maybe in the future we'll do an episode because she's the person that made me really love baking. You know, as as you know, I have baked my whole life and it was something I did with my mom. When I lived with Beth, she loved baking and we did it more often together. And I didn't really realize how much I enjoyed it until we baked together. So we were living in an apartment in Jersey City. The back side of the apartment, you could see the New Jersey Turnpike. And the front of the apartment, you could, from our fire escape, see the Twin Towers. And it was very much a landmark, you know, of the city. So, for example, when I would take the subway up to, like, the Upper West Side, I would look down the city and sometimes, you know, my direction would be skewed. So I'd look around and I'd see the Twin Towers and all of a sudden I'd know, oh, I have to go this way. You know, so it was just very much always there. When my mom visited with my brother, we went up the Twin Towers. Tourists could take the elevator up and the elevator was super fast. You'd get to, I want to say the 110th floor. And then you'd get on the roof. You could go outside and then you'd see the antenna as well as everything else from up there. I'd go up this with some friends, you know, it was a typical tourist thing to do, along with the Statue of Liberty, which before, you know, I've been to the crown of the Statue of Liberty. Way back, you could go up the flame, but when I lived in New York, you could only go up to the crown. And then after 9-11, everything changed. You know, you couldn't go up anything everything was just different but it was something you did you know when friends came to town we'd go up the twin towers we'd go up the statue of liberty and from the twin towers you could see everything so the towers were built one was built in the late 60s and the other was built in the 70s and they were just basically the size of one full block, like one tower was one full block, and then the other one was right next to it, a little offset. And around it was a park, and you had all these other buildings, office buildings, where people would work. 
and they were right next to the towers and obviously a lot smaller. And so in the Twin Towers, it was all businesses, pretty much. I worked in a restaurant like five days a week, and then sometimes I would do other jobs. For instance, you know, being Buzz the Bee on the Today Show, or I was linked with a temp agency, and they would sometimes send me out for random other jobs and they sometimes paid more hourly than my restaurant job so if the temp agency called me for something I would always do it and the temp agency was also linked with the Today Show job so that day it was on September 11th I woke up earlier than normal usually my restaurant job starts I'd have to be there at like 11 a.m. which is kind of late but this job, I had to be there at, I want to say 8, 8.30, somewhere around there. I was supposed to hand out pamphlets. I think it was like some voting-related thing, but it was on Tuesday. So I woke up earlier. Beth was still asleep. And the blinds were like half open. We had three windows in the living room. And usually... You know, I just eat breakfast and like I get dressed and then I leave. I fed the cats. We had two cats, Gabriel and Raphael, both angels. They were both strays. Beth woke up. She would usually turn on the TV to start out and then she'd like get ready for the day. And we turn on the TV, but it wasn't working. We didn't have cable we were linked to antenna. She turned on the TV, it was all fuzzy. And I heard her say like, that, that's weird. You know, she tries other channels. We only had a few channels, but none of them were working. She finds one channel that's working. And I'm getting chills talking about it because this is over 20 years ago. It's so vivid that I guess I've never really talked about the detail of it. In most cases, you don't really want to dwell on things like that, you know, that were so memorable and awful. But as I'm thinking about it, like my hands are getting cold and it was a truly traumatic event, you know, especially being in the city and seeing everything firsthand. So she finds a channel that's working and of course, the antenna, you know, was that we were using, we weren't using cable, was all attached to the World Trade Center. So obviously, nothing was working, right? So the one channel that we found was linked to the Empire State Building, the antenna. And on it, it just shows smoke coming from one of the towers. And they show footage of a plane, you know, hitting the tower. And I look over, you know, and I don't know, I'm not really comprehending, like, what's going on. She goes and opens the blind. And there it is. Like, we see smoke straight up coming from, coming from the tower. And one of them, one of them was already down. Like, we didn't even see that part. And the second tower was now smoking. And the smoke was just billowing out of the tower. 
And she's like, you know, Katrin, like, come over. Look at this. And I go over, we go over to the fire escape. We open the window and we step out on the fire escape. The fire escape was higher than our apartment. So from the fire escape, we could see everything. And we go out there. The smoke is just going straight up. And we're, and we're just looking at each other like, what is happening? And in front of our eyes, the tower just falls. And it just, you know, it's one of those things where, holy crap, like this, this is happening in front of our eyes. And we're like kind of freaking out, you know? I think at this point we had cell phones, but they were like the first Nokia and I had one of those flip phones. Those weren't working. You know, think about the city. There's like, you know, eight million people and everybody is trying to call out and everybody's trying to call in. You know, so the cell phones weren't working. We had a landline. I forget which way it was, but I guess we could dial out, but nobody could dial in because everybody was calling everybody. You know, and there were these people that we could see from our apartment just walking around, like, not in a relaxed way, obviously, but they were walking around trying to find some purpose, you know, because this was early in the morning and already everything was shut down. Like the bridges, the tunnels, you couldn't leave or enter the city. So obviously that day, you know, I couldn't get into the city. Neither would I want to, you know, so Beth right away said, let's go to a hospital and donate blood. You know, that was her first instinct. But then I guess all these other people were trying to give blood too. And the hospitals were overwhelmed. So all we could really do was just stay home. And we just watched the news, that one channel all day. And it was just, it just kept repeating how the airplane crashed into the tower. That was pretty much the last day of summer where it was warm. After that day, all of a sudden it turned cold. Like, I just remember it because it was so vivid. And that day was warm, like it was hot. So all the windows were open. And that smoke, like it was a constant smoke just streaming, you know, from that area. And the wind changed and all the smoke was going toward Brooklyn. So there were reports saying, you know, close your windows. I mean, this is toxic smoke. And this is just the smoke. I mean, imagine the firefighters, you know, the police and the just all the responders that went into the tower. I mean, the smoke was this distinct smell of metal, plastic, just burning. It was such a smell that I will never forget. So every time I smell some sort of metal smoke, like I think of that moment because it was so vivid. You know, and then 
we would start seeing all these missing posters. I mean, just think of all those people that were in the towers, even inside of the Twin Towers on the very ground floor. You know, you had you had floors of malls. I mean, there was a giant mall in the Twin Tower and just all these different levels of shops, restaurants. Below that, you had all these levels of parking. Under that, you had the subway, you had the path station. It was just these endless levels of different floors underground. And then the 110 plus floors above it, just with offices and businesses. So many people were in that area. And then not just the towers, but all the buildings around it. So when I started going to work, you know, the next day, they had reopened the bridges and the tunnels. And I took the path in to the city. And there were two ways to get into the city. You could take the path to the World Trade Center. Obviously, now you couldn't anymore. Or you took it to, it went to 9th Street, 14th Street, 23rd, and 32nd, which is the way I normally went. You know, but if I was downtown, sometimes I would just take it directly from the World Trade Center. The next day I went to work. It was just so surreal because that whole night I couldn't sleep much. The roads were closed. You know, nobody could get in or out of the city the day it happened. I think, you know, I don't know because I wasn't driving, but there was no traffic on the New Jersey Turnpike. You know, everything was kind of just shut down, except for the wreckage. There, It was being cleared out with these trucks, and they were taking it out of the city into New Jersey, and I could see it from the apartment. My bedroom was facing the New Jersey Turnpike. And I could see these cars filled with all this rubble and wreckage on the trucks being driven out. The day I went to work, I walked to the path. There were tanks, like just tanks driving, you know, around the main area where a lot of people were. For example, you know, path stations, subway stations. You know, you'd pay at the turnstile and go down into the tunnel so I could take the path train. And then there were soldiers checking bags, holding machine guns, and just checking everything. You know, overnight, it turned into the way I'd never, ever seen the city before. And just people were not normal. Like the day that it happened, we were just watching the news, watching the news. And it was, it was just so depressing that Beth said, let's go see a movie. And it doesn't even matter. Like, I don't even remember the actual movie we saw. But somebody had dropped a bottle or something. You know, they dropped a bottle. And it rolled down toward the front and this one man, he picked it up and, and, you know, he gave it by hand to the other person that dropped it, like Rose in front. And we looked at each other. We're like, wow, 
That was so nice. You know, normally New Yorkers, I'm not saying they're not friendly. Like if you ask them for something, they'll help you. But everybody pretty much minds themselves, you know, and and these people just wanted to go to the movie theater to escape what was going on, including us. It was just so nice. People were considerate. They were helpful. You know, that maybe lasted a few days. But I remember um, it was just a different tone. Everybody's eyes were open. You know, and I say that because you could tell everybody was thinking, you know, but they were very aware, very alert, and people weren't talking. People were trying to do their normal lives, their normal day-to-day with all of this going on, you know? So when I got to the restaurant, it was actually very busy because all the business people that would usually come there for lunch, they didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have an office to go if they were in that downtown area. So they would be there for hours all day, you know, trying to do their work, trying to find a purpose. And we had this painting. It was it was a famous painting in Houston's in the restaurant, but it was abstract. It 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 looked like a skyscraper. But people were just very sensitive and they said, you know, we should take that down because it was a skyscraper and it reminded them of the World Trade Center. And I guess people thought it was the World Trade Center. It wasn't, you know, but everybody was just ultra sensitive. And one day I was standing at the greeter stand and I see across the street, Bill Clinton is walking up the street. He's walking a few blocks and he's just shaking people's hands. You know, he's he's trying to like liven the mood, you know, and... It was just such a weird time. And there was a smell in the city, you know, of that burning plastic metal. Like it was just, it was just there. And then all these missing posters everywhere, like missing poster on top of missing poster. You couldn't even see the original missing poster. There were just layers of missing posters with people's faces on it, phone numbers to reach them. And the whole city was just this vibe. I'd never seen that. And then obviously people were very strong on the left or very strong on the right because that was the time where President Bush wanted to go and start a war, you know? And this basically gave reason to start a war, but people were very strongly for it or very strongly against it. And there were flags, American flags, that were hung outside of apartment windows, you know, saying either don't fight or go to war. It was just a very extreme time. And then, you know, just everything changed. That's when TSA laws changed to go flying. Like now you had to take your shoes off. Before then, you could leave your shoes on. Same with the water bottle. You know, it was never a thing to empty your water bottle like that all that changed after 9-11 same with any privacy any police officer or soldier could check your bag if they wanted to same with entering buildings now the security was heightened 
And it was basically after 9-11 that all of these adjustments had been made. And it was just a huge turning point in American history, really, regarding privacy. It was a very somber time, you know, and if we'd go to see a movie, most movies that were set in New York, you'd always see a skyline view and it always had the Twin Towers in it. So now, when the movie, before the movie was released, you know, if it had the skyline view in it, you know, the editors had to go back and take out the view and try to edit it in some way that it didn't remind people of the Twin Towers. All these changes had been made. And now when I was going uptown and I came out of the subway, all of a sudden I was turned around and I'd automatically look down, you know, to see if I saw the Twin Towers. And I'm like, oh, right, like they're not there. It was just a different way of thinking because it was, these buildings were just there. They were ingrained in New York. And now everything just had to be rearranged in a sense. You know, luckily, my immediate friends, they weren't in the building. I had a friend who was outside the building. She was a model and she just finished a job and she was walking in the downtown area right by the towers. And as they were falling, she was in the crowd running like, obviously, in New York, there's just all these tall buildings. You know, you can't just run anywhere. All these people running, trying to get away from the rubble and the wreckage that's falling. And then we had, you know, friends of friends whose family were in the towers, and they died. I mean, we saw this horrible footage where people were just hanging from windows, you know? Like, they knew the building would fall and they're just hanging from these skyscrapers on the outside of it. I mean, it was crazy. And they're just these images that stay with me. I'll never forget. But it was just a very surreal time. A lot of people left the city after that. You know, pretty much like main points where people moved outside of the city was 9-11 and during COVID. You know, when, when there's disasters, people don't want to live in the city, especially with all those people. I had a friend visit me a month and a half after 9-11, and, you know, there was still wreckage. And we went down there to see the area. And there was just, like, this metal sticking out. You know, I'll never forget. It was fully burned and just sticking out and there was just all this caution tape around the whole area there were all these tourists i guess that went down to that area to see the rubble and the wreckage the locals weren't really down there too much and it was weird to see that area being photographed you know like i saw it all happen in front of my eyes and now there's nothing left. But now that's the memorial, which when I left New York, they weren't done building it. You know, I left New York end of 2005. And um, I just remember that whole area was rubble. Because if you think about 
such a tall building. And then all those layers of floors below ground level. I mean, all of that had to be cleared out. And including subway stations, path station, like all of that was underground linked to the World Trade Center. So it took years. It took years to clear all of that out. So by the time I left, you know, that wasn't even done. And I didn't even visit New York after that when I left in 2005. I moved to L.A. The next time I came back to New York was when I had the interview for the chocolate factory. When I thought I would get the position on Fifth Avenue initially, and that was in 2019. So this whole time I hadn't visited New York. And I, you know, as much as I love New York, I just didn't have the desire to visit it. I guess I had lived there for so long and I was happy in LA. And then obviously from LA, I went to Arizona. When I visited in 2019, it was such a great visit. You know, such a, I was so happy to be there visiting. But I guess between 2005 and 2019, I just didn't feel like I needed to visit. I don't know. So in that time, the Freedom Tower was built, the memorial had been built, and everything was completely different. I went up the Freedom Tower in 2019 with my friend Weimar. It was kind of crazy to go up it that time when I used to go up the other Twin Towers so often. You know, this one, the elevator was even faster. The tip, the point of it was even taller than the original. But you couldn't go outside. And then there are all these windows where you can walk around the whole top area and see all the views from each side. But then from the top down, you know, where they have the memorial, it's just the whole block is now water running down into it. It's like a waterfall kind of in itself. And with all the names around it, you know, in, in marble, and just seeing that, seeing all those names of people that died or went missing that day, it's so overwhelming to be there and to see it. Then they have the museum, and I couldn't even go into the museum because it's it's still so vivid in my mind, you know? So I think it would be too much. It would be overwhelming to see all those pictures again, you know, when they're seared into my brain of the museum. And then every year on 9-11, they have the light where the towers were and they're beaming up into the sky and then the last time I went on 9-11 down there and all these birds were flying around the light and it was quite a, a sight to see you know it was dark it was pitch black and then this light is beaming up and the night was super clear and then you have all these birds it must have been over a hundred of birds just swarming around the light. I don't know, it was crazy to see that. And that night I called Beth 
and it, it was just super emotional being there. And she's the one person, you know, that I experienced this with. So talking to her that night was really special, you know, and it, it meant something. It's weird now when people tell me of their experience of 9-11, you know, no matter where anybody was, they have their own experience when they saw it on TV or wherever. And they were so young, primary school, high school. And it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. That's the thing. I guess, yeah, I mean, I'm getting older, but it's so strange how these vivid experiences, they just don't go anywhere. You know, they stay with you. I guess that's with anything in life. And for me, 9-11 is one of those. And then in 2003, there was this crazy power outage. Basically, the whole system of the Northeast power grid had been overloaded and it was old. I'm at work on, on 27th and Park. All of a sudden, the whole restaurant goes dark. You know, it's daytime out, so I wasn't thinking to look outside or anything. Some people are coming in from outside, from other restaurants, being like, do you guys have power? You know, and, and we're like, no. And then it turns out that the whole city has no power. So basically, if you're in a small town not having power, it's never great. It's never a good thing, right? <laughs> like you think of everything that you bought and you don't want it to thaw or anything. In a whole city, think about it. If there's no power, all of these floors, all of these stories all of these stores, all of these restaurants, and then the subway tunnels. To have no power down there, the subway is not working. I heard stories of people having to exit the subway in the tunnel and walk out of the nearest exit, which is not a station. You know, you're in between stations, completely dark. So if you think about a city you know, there's people below you, there's people above you. I mean, crazy. Luckily, I mean, I was not home. And home at that point was still in New Jersey, in Jersey City. But I had moved to a different apartment on 6th Street. I was at work and people just start walking. Like I'm kind of in the Midtown area. Most people don't live downtown. You know, they don't live I mean, some people do, but there's a lot of offices and businesses. So most people either live way uptown or downtown or Brooklyn. You know, most people don't live in the city unless you're super lucky. And there's more residential areas up by Central Park, you know, Upper East Side, Upper West Side. But I'm on 27th and Park. There's just groups of people that start walking uptown. I'm like getting a little bit nervous because I'm thinking, how am I going to get home? You know, I would take the path back to New Jersey, but there's no electricity. So I, you know, that's not going to work. So I'm thinking I need to walk downtown to the ferry and take the ferry across to get home. I finally leave work. You know, obviously work ends early because there's no electricity. The kitchen's not working. 
People can't see anything in the kitchen. Obviously, they never have windows. You know, so they had to close early. You know, everything has to be closed down manually. No credit cards are working. Nothing's working. And people in the restaurant, workers, guests, they're all getting nervous. Like, nobody really knows what's going on. People think some sort of disaster happened or something else. You know, in New York, you're always kind of on edge. It's a huge city, so anything can pretty much happen. You know, so people are wanting to leave the restaurant. They're getting antsy, but it's taking a while because they can't take credit cards. So everyone's kind of confused about what's going on, you know, and, and it's other people from the street that start giving information. I exit the building, which is the MetLife building with the gold roof, you know, if you're familiar with that one. And that's where Houston's is located. So I exit the building. I'm going against all these people. All these people are walking uptown. And, you know, imagine if you're living in the Bronx. I mean, up way up there up to 125th and upwards. I mean, crazy. Luckily, I didn't have a crazy amount to walk. Like I walked down to the ferry, which was all the way, if you think about the tip of New York, you know, I walked all the way down there, which I guess took about 40 minutes, something like that. But then when I got there, the line to get onto the ferry was hours long. Like I had to wait for four hours before I could even get on the ferry. And behind me are hours and hours of lines, you know, and and everybody had to be orderly, fit on these ferries. Basically all the people that worked in Manhattan from New Jersey all had to go back, you know? So I'm waiting there and it's getting dark. The city is pitch black. You know, my phone works, my cell phone works because I still have battery. You know, and that was hot too. It was a summer of 2003. And people in the city, like their fridges weren't working. Nothing was working. It was just pitch black. And my friend was telling me how she was so hot you know, like no fans were working, no AC, nothing was working. And then I finally get on the ferry. It's packed, you know, it's packed like sardines. And as I get on, people have to count, you know, they're counting all these people getting on so that it's not too many people. Obviously the boat can't be too heavy. So I get on the New Jersey side and it's maybe like a 20 minute walk to my apartment from there. And then I see the street lights are on. You know, I get in New Jersey, weirdly enough, there's power. And I'm like, oh wow, this is, this is crazy. You know, let me, I hope there's AC on, you know, in my apartment. Cause we had like one AC unit in the wall. And I get on my street on sixth street The weirdest thing ever, there's this Italian festival going on, which I'm like doing a double take. I'm thinking it's dire straits in Manhattan. Everybody's trying to get home 
no power, pitch black. And then on the street that I live on, there's an Italian festival. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> there's a miniature Ferris wheel. There's all these food stands. They're serving Zeppoli, you know, these corn dogs and all these other like Italian things. And I was so confused. Like it was the weirdest surreal thing ever. The Italians in New Jersey are probably like, F Manhattan, we had this festival planned, we're having it tonight, and we have power, so there. And I get into my apartment, <laughs> and, you know, my ex, he's home, and I'm like, did you see that street fair outside? Like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, it's crazy. You know, inside I have AC, we have lights, like everything was fine in New Jersey. Usually when you live in New Jersey, you kind of want to live in Manhattan, you know, because it's convenient. But this was one of the times where I was so happy to be living in New Jersey. New York was such a weird time during COVID. I mean, obviously when COVID started, I was in Switzerland. I was in an ideal place. I was so thankful that I wasn't in New York. And when I went to Switzerland, I flew there in January. I just made it to Switzerland. And then you start hearing about all these cases happening. You know, but it's kind of like going on in the background. And then it got full blown in Switzerland in March. Because I was offered the job on Fifth Avenue in Switzerland, I asked if I could stay in Switzerland because on the news in Switzerland, I was seeing these mass graves in New York, you know, kind of well, Rikers Island and surrounding areas of Manhattan. They were burying all these people. I was thinking, wow, um, I don't want to go back to New York, you know? So I, I stayed in Switzerland as long as I could. And when I did go back, it was in July in 2020 and it was crazy you know because first of all you couldn't even fly back you know I mean when you fly to the US from Europe obviously you get like a temporary visa but nobody could fly back you know the only people that could fly back were people who had permanent green cards who had American passports so I was able to get on the plane and this was a large international plane, you know, where it was like in the middle you have five seats and on both sides you have three. It's not just the traditional, you know, two, four, two. This plane was almost completely empty. It was crazy. And then just to get back, you have to do, you know, your COVID test. When you land, you have to show all your papers. Like it was, it was very similar to 9-11, but instead of it being like a war zone, it was just, it was just, it was just very similar to 9-11 with security measures and things like that. But instead of, you know, checking all your bags, you just had to have all these different papers and you were being treated like you had COVID basically. You know, you wear a mask the whole time, you can't take it off. 
when you're entering internationally into the airport, you know, the security that is there, they're wearing these huge gas masks and basically looking at you like you basically have COVID. You know, but security was very heightened. When they asked me, you know, what was the purpose of my trip in Switzerland? And I'd say, I worked at a chocolate factory. All of a sudden, they'd be super happy, you know? <laughs> so anytime I mentioned chocolate, it made their day. All of a sudden, they completely flipped from super serious to, oh, wow, I love chocolate. Which kind of chocolate? You know, and then this one person that I talked to, you know, he totally didn't take my fingerprints and he said, oh, you know, my favorite is this chocolate. I, and he showed me his bars of chocolate. Like it was the funniest thing. You know, this is just a few months after COVID hit the U.S. So I'm in the middle of it. I had friends who told me basically when COVID happened, nobody was walking on the street at all. It was just, everything was empty. All the businesses were closed. Nobody was on the street. And it was kind of a sketchy place. You know, when nobody is there, that's when things are unsafe or they feel unsafe, you know? And especially when there's no businesses, there's no reason to go out. I remember that if I wanted to maybe get a coffee, I couldn't just go inside a store and get a coffee. I had to make a reservation. I couldn't pay with cash, only card, or tapping with your phone. Most businesses were closed, but then some, you know, you had to only do to-go. Like, everything was a process. Nothing was easy anymore. And so many businesses shut down. They didn't exist anymore. It was a good thing I was staying in the city at the time, like my, my studio apartment, because I had to plan everything around using a restroom. All the restrooms were closed in restaurants. The restaurants weren't even open, only available for to-go's. So if I needed to use the restroom, I'd have to run back to my apartment somehow, use it, and then kind of plan my day around a restroom. Like, how crazy is that? It was just such a crazy time of uncertainty. And nobody knew anything really, what was going on and how things would become. And, you know, like when people could travel, when people could see their families. I mean, just crazy. And most people didn't even want to see their families because they didn't want to make them sick. You know, the, the older had a weaker immune system. So people were seeing their families from outside their windows and talking to them. Like this was going on in Switzerland too. The family was on their patio or inside their window, and then the family member was outside of the window talking to them. People didn't want to go on the elevators with other people. You know, everybody, like, extra tightened their mask when you would go on the elevator with somebody, or people would just wait, you know, for the next elevator. The gyms were closed. You couldn't, like, go to a gym. Or if there was a gym in your building, then you had to reserve a time so that you weren't using it at the same time as somebody else or it wasn't too crowded. Like, nobody trusted anybody because you saw everybody as having COVID. You know, you saw everybody as somebody that could basically kill you. I don't know, it was crazy, especially being in the city with something like that. 
you know, switching from the Switzerland hiking and, and outdoors and all that to New York, where you have to wear your mask at all times, all the time. It's just a completely different way. And if you weren't wearing a mask and you're in the subway or if you didn't have the mask over your nose, which you were supposed to, you know, I saw several people in the subway getting yelled at. Fights were being broken out because they weren't wearing their mask properly or not at all or wearing it under the chin or all this craziness. So it's just very extreme, you know, from countryside to city. But I understand, you know, I mean, I wasn't in New York, thankfully, when COVID broke out. So I don't know what it was like to be inside this whole time. You know, at least in Switzerland, most places have a balcony. But in New York, I mean, you just have this small little space and you have to be in this space 24-7. I mean, that will drive anybody crazy. A lot of people in New York knew other people that had died from COVID. So, of course, they're going to be more protective and, and try and be more secure about the whole situation. But basic things became the most difficult things. Going to a hairdresser. I mean, people were cutting their own hair at home. You know, all of a sudden, all the blonde people weren't blonde anymore because they, they couldn't dye their hair because the hairdressers were closed. Or just lines everywhere wanting to get in a grocery store. Or you couldn't find certain things, you know, like yeast or toilet paper. But everything was just gone or, or hard to get. Same with the arts. The arts suffered all the art suffered at that time. There was no theater. The movies were closed. And when they did reopen, you had to wear your mask the whole time. And it was limited to a certain amount of people in the theater. But at the same time, nobody was going to the movie theater, except me. I was, <laughs> I was going to the movie theater because I wanted something else. And I love the movies, you know, so everything was just crazy. And then I would see people singing in Central Park they just wanted to play, they wanted to sing, you know, all those artists that couldn't at the time were playing just for the public to get a reaction, to be able to do what they love to do. That's why so many people moved outside of the city, because when chaos hits a city, there's no reason to be in the city. You can't do anything, you know, so during COVID, all these people could only stay in their apartments. Thankfully, I was in Switzerland and I was hiking. I was hiking like a maniac, all these mountains. Because even in Switzerland, the government was saying you had to stay inside and most people live in apartments, but they all have balconies. So all these people were just sitting in, on their balconies, sunbathing. They were saying, okay, just stay home. Don't travel, don't do anything. And I'm like, uh, I'm gonna go hike. <laughs> so it was just a few people that were out. You know, the, the Swiss are very obedient. They're very obedient folk. And uh, they basically do what they're told. You know, I am less obedient in that regard because when you're told something in the US, you kind of take it with a grain of salt, you know? Um, <laughs> you still kind of do what you want to. So, you know, yes, I'm European, but I've lived in the U.S. so long that I'm kind of more American. I would hike with my ex and we'd go up all these mountains, take picnics, because obviously there the restaurants were closed too. You know, everything was closed everywhere. So 
we would just take what we needed and we'd hike up these mountains. And there was this one like kind of mud path to get to this waterfall. And it was this beautiful waterfall. And I have a thing with waterfalls. I love waterfalls. And in Switzerland, there are so many waterfalls. So I would do all the research and find all the waterfalls and say, okay, we got to go to all these waterfalls. So every day I had off, I would work at the factory. So basically there's like three, 400 people working at the chocolate factory. And I was one of the essential workers, so to speak, because during COVID, more people ate cookies and they ate more sweets than before. So I had to continue working. And it was maybe I was like one of 50 people that continued to work during COVID and I was getting paid hourly. So at least I had a job. When you were salary, you could stay home and 80% of your salary, the government continued to pay you. So basically you were home in Switzerland for like three months and you got continuously paid. And they were complaining that they were only getting 80%. I'm like, are you kidding me? In the US, you wouldn't even get 80%. Like people didn't get 80%, even though in New York, New York State paid out, I guess more than people were getting paid hourly. So people really weren't motivated to start working after that whole thing. They just wanted to stay home because they were getting paid more from the state than they were from their jobs. So here I am in Switzerland, wanting to hike all these waterfalls. And there's this, there's this mud path to this waterfall. And there's this rope. You know, it's kind of hanging. It's not like serious okay it's not a serious rope with caution tape and like scary colors so I walk over this rope like it's no big deal and my ex says to me what are you doing I'm like what (laughs) it's a rope (laughs) I you know I climbed over like I just walked over it and he's like they don't just put up ropes in Switzerland like if there's a rope then it's something serious something's wrong on this path like we shouldn't be walking on it and I'm like okay like I I turn around and I see I'm like it looks fine let's just go and he's like okay but if something happens to us you know we cannot get any money back or whatever it's basically we're doing this at our own risk I'm like okay let's go (laughs) you know so he goes over the rope and we get to this waterfall and yeah The mud path is a little muddy and there were mudslides and it was going straight down a cliff. So basically, if you were walking there, you could slip and fall down a cliff, but it wasn't even like that dramatic. I've gone down scarier places in Colorado going down mountains. So this was no big deal. And I get to the waterfall and there's nobody there because of this rope. Like nobody's walking to the waterfall because they're doing what they're told and this rope is up. But this waterfall was so loud and perfect and this rainbow had started forming, you know, where the mist of the water is. And it was so perfect. And we walk back We go up a mountain and we start eating like what we packed. And then my ex is like, look, there's some, there's some people down there. Let's see if they walk over the rope. 
we watch, they stare, like they stand at the rope and they talk, you know. They turn around and they drive away. And he's like, see? Like people don't just walk over the rope. And this is how it was during COVID. They all stayed home. You know, they all stayed home on their balconies and basically baked all day. I mean, same in the U.S. You couldn't find yeast anywhere. Yeast was like gold because everybody all of a sudden wanted to bake. You know, they had all this time. Oh, now they were making their own bread because, and I'm sure you remember, everybody was buying insane amounts of toilet paper. And what is up with that? Like, why in times of crisis do you feel comforted by buying mass amounts of toilet paper to the point that the grocery stores don't have any and when they get a shipment you can only have like one four pack per person like they have to ration toilet paper but what is that i mean Is it because you're home, now you're cooking and baking more, you have to go to the bathroom more, so you need more toilet paper? Like, I'm just not understanding that logic. I understand the yeast thing, you know, and it was during that time that I was super interested in making natural yeast. So my ex, he got this book about natural yeast, and I was so intrigued by it. So natural yeast is basically, you can use any type of fruit or vegetable, it just has to be higher in sugar. So you could use an onion, you could use potato, you can start with tomato, it's like a safe bet, but you can use anything with with natural sugars in it. You puree it, you add a little bit of extra sugar, I think it was like four tablespoons, and water. You basically fill up, so if you have this Tupperware, let's say it's a four cup Tupperware, You put in two cups of puree, four tablespoons of sugar, and two cups of water. And basically, you let it sit out for about four to six days, and it starts to ferment. So then you can make your own bread after this time. And instead of adding more water, you know, because to make bread is basically flour, salt, yeast, sugar. But the sugar and the yeast is already in your natural yeast, in your Tupperware. So all you're doing is is straining the liquid and you're pouring in the water with the sugar, basically, that's in your liquid. And all you have to do is add salt and flour. Anyway, I got in this huge thing and started having all these jars of different fruits and fruit purees and making all this different yeast and it was so interesting to me I think um, if you go on my Instagram I have this whole process and this whole procedure of it obviously it took more time because it's natural yeast it took even longer than sourdough and you have to ferment it and make your whole mixture to begin with but if you couldn't find yeast then this was a different alternative you know so I made some really good batches of bread and one of my favorites was the one I made with onion because it had such good flavor and surprisingly in onion it was just very active. If you're interested in natural yeast, I recommend it. 
because the flavor of the fruit you're using got into the bread too. Like I also used beets and it didn't really make the bread super pink. It made it more of a brown color, but it definitely added an interesting flavor. So anyway, it's worth checking out. It's worth testing. So yeah, that was during COVID. Everybody was making bread. You know, it's the same thing in the US. I get to the city through the company because I'm going to be working in the city with the chocolate company. And they put me up in this apartment building like on 40th Street. And it was weird because I arrive in the city by bus from Newark. And the city is like so empty. I totally wasn't expecting that. Nobody's walking around. You know, I know the city to be bustling. I know there's always people walking around. And this was like so empty, you know, and I've got my two suitcases. And I was kind of feeling like a little odd. I get to my apartment building and I have this studio apartment, which was nice. I stayed there for a few months. But it was in that time that there were so many changes in the city. A lot of small businesses had closed, and this was all over the world. I mean, how are you supposed to survive if you can't even be open? You know, so all these businesses and even large businesses had closed. All these chains in the city, like chains that I had never seen. But then when I was in the city, I saw them all over and they had all closed. You know, so it was just such a weird time. And I was toward the part where people were now working, you know, so I never saw the city dead. But at night, you know, when all the people that lived in Brooklyn and the surrounding neighborhoods, when they all left the city, I was still in the city because I was staying there. I didn't like to go out at night because it was very creepy, you know, so I would never be on the phone as I was walking at night. And I had a couple random people kind of follow me. So the thing is, what's creepy when people have mental issues and they're in the city, like those are the people you kind of have to look out for. And there was a lot of that going around. And again, you know, just men just taking off their pants and walking around. I wasn't far away from Times Square. So there's one day, I think it was my day off, I was going to walk up to Central Park. And it was summer, so I'm walking through Times Square, and it's not packed at all. You know, during this time, people don't really want to visit the city, so there's not much tourism. If people don't have to go into the city, when they live in the surrounding areas, they won't. So I'm walking in Times Square, and I hear these three women behind me, like, kind of laugh, screaming, you know, like something super funny. And I turn around... And this guy is walking past me super fast. And I did a double take. And I'm like, is he naked? Like, I saw his butt. <laughs> like, he's just walking. But he's walking super fast. He's wearing a mask. I saw that. He's wearing these navy blue or royal blue socks and nice shoes. But the rest of him is naked. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got to take a picture of this. Like... <laughs> nobody's ever going to believe me. So, so I quickly take a picture and he is, 
he's walking so fast. You know, for him, it's just like some sort of a thrill. Like he's trying to see what he can get away with. I don't know. But, but think about this. You wake up and you're like, today, I'm not going to wear any clothes. Like why? Okay. And if he has a doorman, would the doorman maybe stop him or say something? I don't know. Like you get dressed, you put your socks on. And then at that point, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to put anything else on, but I'll put on my mask. That's what's important, right? First of all, how about your area? Like, I think that has more germs than you putting on a mask. Like, I think underwear is more important than a mask. I'm just going to say, like, this is New York. This is just the most random thing. And, you know, these women that were behind me, they were laughing. They had a friend that was kind of in front of them. So they call her name and they want her to turn around. And she full on sees his front area. And I guess she made a face and it was super funny to these other women. So they were like howling, laughing, you know, and this guy doesn't care. He's just like, he's just walking super fast. I don't know, like for what purpose? <laughs> I guess he had to get to work naked, you know what? So I told my mom about this, super serious. She's like, she's like, yeah, those are called streakers. Like they, they do it for the thrill, you know? Like I'm telling her this cause it's funny and I thought she would laugh. But meanwhile, she's like super serious about it. She's like, yeah, like I know those people. I'm like, what? <laughs> Like that what what an odd reaction. And when I was in New York, you know, because I was living there, I was working at the store, but the Fifth Avenue store wasn't open yet. So I was working in this other store and basically just selling chocolate and talking about the whole chocolate process. Because when I worked at the factory, I saw every stage of the chocolate making process. Nobody could travel to the US from Switzerland. So I was the only one within the company that was in the US that really knew how all of this chocolate was made. So I was in the stores talking to people about it. I was doing online classes where the store would send people the chocolate and then virtually we would do a chocolate tasting and I'd guide people through the tasting. So when you taste chocolate, first of all, you don't want to bite on the chocolate. You want it to melt in your mouth. Chocolate takes on the flavor of the terroir, of the soil. So depending on where it's grown, it takes on the flavor of what grows around it. So chocolate that's grown in Ghana is going to taste completely different than chocolate that's grown in Madagascar because different plants and different foods and fruits grow in those regions based on the climate. So it's really interesting. So when you taste the chocolate and you let it melt on your tongue, there's an initial flavor, there's a middle and an end. You know, for example, for Madagascar, you might have banana notes, guava notes, you know, and, and the flavor changes throughout as the chocolate is melting. So it's super interesting. And then also you taste the amount of cocoa butter that's in there based on its creaminess, on its silkiness. So all of this I learned in Switzerland, basically the company that was in the US just said, you have to come to the US and start working here. But then I get to the US 
and I'm not working in the Fifth Avenue store because it's not built yet. Because they had so many delays during COVID, all these construction workers, you know, they couldn't work the same. They just had a lot of delays, and then they weren't getting the equipment. They weren't getting, for example, in the Fifth Avenue store, they needed a lot of marble. All of that was being imported from Italy, so they weren't getting their equipment that they needed. So there were all these issues, and everything was getting delayed because of it. So now I was in New York, and I couldn't work in Fifth Avenue. So I was working at the Lexington location, basically just selling chocolate. You know, I was supposed to be the chocolatier and making the chocolate. I couldn't do that. You know, and that's when I said to the CEO, "I'd like to go back to Switzerland, basically learn the live production setup, and be in Switzerland again for a few months, so that when I come back, finally." And Fifth Avenue is open, then I know how everything's done. Of course, that for me was just another reason to see my ex-fiance who was in Switzerland. But it worked out because I did learn a lot when I worked in the live production in Switzerland. It was right before Christmas that I went back to Switzerland. So I was in New York. I want to say five months, and then I went back to Switzerland. You know, and obviously, having a European passport, I was able to enter Europe no problem. But I was also able to enter back into the U.S. no problem. You know, so my situation was very specific. But at the time, it was just so nice to be back in Switzerland because they weren't so strict with the masks. Because obviously, there were less people, and you could walk around more, you know, and hike in the mountains. Whereas in New York and the surrounding areas. Everybody was out hiking all the time, you know, because people didn't want to be in the city. But it's just like in times of chaos, you know, you build these relationships. If I had been in Switzerland alone, and I had not met my ex during that time, I think it would have been a very sad time. You know, I mean, as we know, depression and anxiety spiked because people. They're not made to just be alone, you know. People are social, and you want to build connections. But during that time, you know, people were afraid. I mean, it was just such a crazy time, right? And it was the same with nine eleven. You know, people were just very anxious, depressed. And even when the power outage happened in 2003, you know that's it wasn't a long time after 9/11. So as soon as a power outage happened, people think the worst. You know, like what disaster happened now? You know, meanwhile, it's the grid. Like there was no attack. And then during COVID, you know, I met my ex basically a few weeks before. COVID was full blown. We had that time together, and we could bake and cook and hike everywhere. I mean, it was like actually one of the best times. You know, COVID was horrible for a lot of people. I don't wish COVID to come back or anything like it. For me, it was a very special time because have the right person by your side and to spend that time together. That was special. That was meaningful. And obviously, if you were with the wrong person at that time, you know, a lot of people 
either fell in love during that time or they got divorced during that time because you spent so much time with this other person that you either loved them or you hated them, you know? Like, especially in New York, you know, when you're in apartments all day. I mean, in Germany too, you couldn't even leave. You know, Germany, France, they were very strict. They didn't even want you out gardening. Like, it was such a weird time. Yeah, I was very grateful that I was able to continue to work and that I had company, you know, that I wasn't alone during that time. You know, and I guess that's why I love baking too, because in times of hardship, in times of turmoil and trouble, you know, there's always baking and it's comforting. And that's always been a constant for me, like even during acting, after I'd go to auditions, I'd go home and I'd bake or I'd cook. And it was just a comforting thing. You know, so during COVID, everybody was cooking and baking because they didn't know what else to do. You know, and I was doing the same too. I was making my own yeast. I mean, wow. You know, so those things are just very comforting. Thank you for listening to an episode of Cat the Baker. I'm Chef KB. And please follow me on the app that you're listening to. And I'm also on Instagram at Chef KB or on YouTube at Cat the Baker. Thank you so much. Until next time.